I got a great new show all about Broadway. I'm gonna talk for hours and I hope you'll stay. Gonna talk about shows big and small. So welcome now to Breaking the Fourth Wall. Hello and welcome to Episode 8 of Breaking the Fourth Wall. The podcast where I cover your favorite shows, both musical and otherwise, from on and off Broadway and do a deep dive into their history and meaning. My name is Juice, and today, friends, we are talking about Shining City by Connor McPherson, and I am going to make you fall in love with this play. Before we get started, though, I wanted to talk about why I'm covering it, because when I recorded the last episode, I didn't know what show I was going to talk about for this one. What I've been trying to do is form some sort of connection between the shows. And last week, I covered Bear, a pop opera. Side note, Thank you so much again to my sister for coming on and singing for us, as well as providing some wonderful thoughts on the show. But I also want to thank everyone who listened, because you really showed me just how big of a following Bear has that I didn't even know about. Overnight one night, the Bear episode became my second most downloaded episode ever. And so at the end of that episode, I already knew what musical I was going to cover next. And while I still can, I'm trying to alternate between musicals and straight plays so that people who don't have Spotify can still get some content. And I sat there thinking, how do I follow that? How do I follow a story about a gay love story that ends tragically with Shakespearean parallels? And then it hit me. See, going to acting school, you end up learning about so many different aspects of your craft. Even though they don't make you do this, I've learned that eventually you have to pick a specialty. You have to find what your niche is, what you're good at. They want you to have a range and not put yourself into a box. Well, most of the teachers are like that anyway. Some of them definitely shove you into a box whether you like it or not. But after a couple of years into it, I think you have to play to your strengths. Some actors are more dramatic and don't have a funny bone in their body. Others are never serious and can make you laugh with a slight movement or facial expression. I always thought I could do both, and I spent way too much time trying to do that, when what I was really good at were dialects and accents. Now here's where I'm going to get a little pretentious, and I'll ask for your forgiveness in advance. One of the first things they taught us was the difference between an accent and a dialect, and I'll share it with you now. A dialect is a regional variation of a particular language while an accent is what happens when you speak a language other than your first language and retain the sounds of that language when speaking the new one. So whenever I hear someone born and raised in America who only speaks English, and perhaps not that well, they say they have an accent and my eye twitches a little. Because what they have is a dialect. So again, I'll ask your forgiveness and I know the handful of my friends who actually listen are rolling their eyes hard right now. But I just want to get that off my chest. I just had to. So dialects were really my specialty. And when I mentioned earlier that at first you try to distinguish yourself as either a comedic or a dramatic actor, I was definitely labeled the funny guy for a while. And initially my dialect teacher would only give me funny scenes. Then something interesting happened. I ended one semester learning a French accent, which was my choice. Over the summer, they changed the curriculum so that everyone learned the same dialect or accent. And they started with French. When she announced this, I looked at my teacher, and since I was the only one who already learned it, they couldn't exactly switch it up, so she just apologized. But I took it as a challenge to polish it, since I actually kind of botched the final. And she gave me a scene that wasn't entirely serious, but it wasn't a farce either. 
um, and she started to see me as a dramatic actor. I next got a scene from Two Sisters and a Piano by Nilo Cruz uh, to do a Spanish accent, something I plan to cover on this podcast, by the way, if I can figure out how to do it properly. And uh, that was a a very dramatic scene. And I closed out that semester doing a scene from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof for Mississippi Delta Dialect. So so that kind of turned the tide for me in how I was perceived, because when we started to learn an Irish dialect next semester, my teacher handed me a scene from today's play, Shining City by Conor McPherson. And here's where the connection to Bear comes in. Uh, if I remember correctly, she gave me a choice of which play to go with based on the plot. I can't remember what the other option was. Uh, in fact, it, it may have been also a Conor McPherson play. It may have been The Weir or Lime Tree Bower, which I'll talk about in a second. But she said something like, or you can play a gay ex-priest who becomes a therapist. And I said, gay ex-priest, please. And when I was thinking about what to cover next, that's when it hit me. If I showed one side of a struggle for identity and sexuality within the confines of religion, I should show the other side. The stories are actually very different, both in tone and execution, but the similarities are strong enough for me to link them. Shining City tells the story of a man named Ian who has left the order and renounced his priesthood to pursue a career as a therapist. Throughout the course of the show, we discover that he is dealing with his own issues and kind of having a midlife crisis, but more on that later. First, let's talk about the playwright. Connor McPherson is one of the most prolific Irish playwrights. And perhaps I'm saying that as an American who isn't overly familiar with a ton of Irish playwrights, but I have been introduced to several different ones over the years, and his work stands at the top of the list for me in terms of quality. The other one people talk about is uh, Martin McDonough, and believe me, we will cover some of his work as well, but Connor doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion, for being in the same conversation as McDonough. Martin writes more twisted and sadistic work, namely Pillow Man, and you may also be familiar with his work in film, like In Bruges or Seven Psychopaths. But Connor's work is more heartfelt and beautiful. It's not really fair to compare the two. Um, Connor McPherson studied at University College Dublin, and it was there that he began to write and direct plays, having three of his works produced at the university's amateur theater group, Dramsock. After graduation, he got together with a few other UCD graduates to form a theater company called Fly By Night. Kind of my favorite name for a theater company, other than James Roday's theater company Red Dog Squadron. Other members of Fly By Night include Richard Brennan, Jason Byrne, Kevin Healy, Peter McDonald, Colin O'Connor, undoubtedly the most Irish name of all time, and Valerie Spellman. Fly By Night is responsible for producing a lot of McPherson's early work and was kind of a launchpad for his career. Some of those early plays include A Light in the Window of Industry, Rum and Vodka, and This Lime Tree Bower. These were all done in the 90s, ending with The Slime Tree Bower in 1998. Then, in 1999, he started to get more recognition when his play The Weir was produced by the Royal Court Theatre in London before transferring to the West End and eventually Broadway. I haven't really talked about uh, the West End much on this podcast, but it's essentially the Broadway of the UK. Speaking of the Royal Court, that's where Shining City opened in 2004, and Connor himself directed it. A few of his other plays would end up making it to Broadway, uh, The Seafarer in 2007, and Girl from the North Country, which opened March 5th, 2020. And if you haven't been living under a rock, you know that this is just mere weeks before everything got shut down due to the pandemic. I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Girl from the North Country is a musical set in Duluth, Minnesota with music from Bob Dylan. 
Both Seafarer and Girlfriend in the North Country were directed by McPherson, but interestingly enough, Shining City has another tie to a different episode of this podcast because its Broadway run was directed by Robert Falls, who you may remember as the prolific artistic director of The Goodman, who directed The Speed of Darkness. And so I want to talk about that production for a bit. Um, none of the actors from the original Royal Court production made it to the Broadway cast, which kind of saddens me a bit. It would have been nice to have all Irish actors performing this beautiful work, though the Broadway cast had some, which I'll get to. In 2016, a revival was produced off-Broadway at the Irish Repertory Theatre for uh, the opening of their new space. I don't know a ton about that theatre company, but from what I can tell, it's run by actual Irish people from Ireland. The actress playing Nessa commented that she had heard the impact of Irish rep from over in Ireland and was thrilled to be a part of it. In that production, Matthew Broderick played John, and here's why I say it's a shame that the original cast didn't get a crack at this play, because there are clips on YouTube of this production, and Matthew is one of two American actors, and it really shows. The other American played Lawrence, which is kind of a smaller role, but in the clip they showed of him, he seemed to do a you know, decent job at the dialect, but the role of John has these big, long monologues because his scenes are basically his therapy sessions with Ian, and so having a non-Irish actor for that part just feels inauthentic. So let's go over, go over the cast for that 2006 Broadway production. Ian, who I mentioned is the main character, was played by Brian O'Byrne. Brian was actually born in Ireland, and he's had a ton of Broadway credits, including playing Father Flynn in Doubt, which I've mentioned on this podcast before, and The Coast of Utopia, which is a very long three-part epic about Russian philosophy written by Tom Stoppard. Um, I definitely don't have it in me to cover that play, but look out for a Tom Stoppard play sometime in the future because he is a phenomenal playwright. John, who is the only patient of Ian's we see, and the plot kind of centers around their therapy sessions, was played by Oliver Platt. I personally think the man needs no introduction, but in case you don't know who he is, he's been in Lake Placid, Three Musketeers, and Bicentennial Man, among countless others. But this was his first Broadway credit, uh, though he did go on to play Nathan Detroit in the 2009 revival of Guys and Dolls. Now, I'm a big fan of his work, so I'm kind of sad that I couldn't find any recordings of his performance so I can judge his dialect. Though it's probably for the best because I'm a big fan of Matthew Broderick as well, and hearing his dialect definitely made me dial that back just a little. Not a lot, but a little. Matthew, if you're listening, I still love you. Nessa, who is Ian's ex-fiance, was played by Martha Plimpton. Martha is Broadway and Hollywood royalty. She's the daughter of Keith Carradine, Keith Carradine, excuse me, and Shelley Plimpton. Shelley and Keith were both in the original cast of Hair, the musical. Side note, my wife and I have just started collecting vinyl as uh, we just got a record player for ourselves for Christmas, and Hair is the first one she got. She got it for me because she's the best. Martha herself has been in a ton of Broadway shows as well as a ton of movies and television. She was in that same production of Coast of Utopia I mentioned earlier and in the 2008 revival of Pal Joey. She was also in The Goonies, pretty iconic, and several TV shows including The Good Wife and Raising Hope. Lawrence, who is essentially a male escort, was played by Peter Scanavino. This was his only Broadway credit, but he's done a fair amount of film and television, you may know, including three different iterations of Law and & Order. And what I know him most for is playing Ira in Happy Thank You More, Please. If you haven't seen that yet, please fix that. It's funny, in the play, when his character is introduced, the description reads, It is hard to tell if he is 30 and looks much younger, or 20 and looks much older. 
And if you look up a picture of Peter, of Peter Scanavino, that's essentially how I describe him as well at that point in his life. Even now, to be fair. I've said before that I, I don't always mention the awards a particular show gets, but I do want to talk about this one because it didn't actually win any major awards, uh, at least the Broadway production, but it did get a few nominations that are notable for me. If you watch the Tonys, you'll know that much like Broadway itself, it's comprised of probably 90% musicals and 10% straight plays. So when a straight play gets any sort of Tony recognition, I always think it's noteworthy. Shining City was nominated for Best Play, and Oliver Platt was nominated for Best Actor in a Play. Brian O'Byrne was nominated for a Drama Desk Award, but none of them actually won these awards, which makes me a little sad. Though in looking it up, I kind of understand why. It lost both Tony Awards and the Drama Desk Award to the History Boys. If you've read or seen that play, it, it just makes sense. The History Boys is so good, and from an award standpoint, it's just the kind of show that usually wins these awards. Now, without going into great detail, I want to talk about the plot. The entirety of this play takes place in one setting, Ian's office in Dublin. There are five scenes in total, and there's about a two-month lapse of time in between each scene. So essentially, it takes place over the course of a year. Some people call Shining City a ghost story. And in some ways, Conor McPherson is known for this kind of work. The Weir and The Seafarer I mentioned earlier are two good examples. The Weir is about a group of people in an Irish pub swapping ghost stories and other stories of supernatural elements. And The Seafarer is about a man who plays poker with the devil. But to me... Calling Shining City a ghost story feels like putting it into a box in which it doesn't belong. This could be my own very biased take, as I shared earlier. I too often felt put into a box I didn't belong in, but I am going to do my best to look at this objectively and let you decide whether it's a ghost story or not. Before we dive into the plot, I want to read a note from Conor McPherson about the staging of this play. He says, I would prefer it if stage management didn't appear on stage during scene changes. In the original production, the actor playing Ian made any necessary arrangements in the room, carrying furniture and objects on and off by himself. We made a virtue of the scene changes, using them to indicate the passage of time. As Ian changed his costume or brought new objects into the room, we indicated days and nights going by, from dawn rising to noon, to early afternoon, to dusk and nighttime, over and over while music played. When the work was complete, the music faded, and the next scene began. It enabled us to get a sense of Ian's life continuing. I really like that. Of course, scene changes are a part of any play, or at least most of them, and having grown up doing theater, I'm kind of fascinated by them. It is kind of a new trend lately, where directors will have actors share the load. What they did in Shining City is a brilliant example of doing that in a way that advances the plot and adds an element to the storytelling, which is which is really amazing. But it, it just kind of got me thinking of the times when I don't feel it's necessary because it kind of takes jobs away from theater technicians. Some of my best friends in high school were techies and they wore that badge proudly. There was a director named John Doyle who made a name for himself about 15 years ago by doing Sondheim revivals and had the actors play their own instruments. The 1998, uh, Revival of Cabaret, directed by Sam Mendes, who happens to be my favorite film director, uh, did this as well. But I think it kind of made sense with that one because they were in a club. 
John Doyle did this with Sweeney Todd and Company. Now, it was really powerful in Company because Raul Esparza as Bobby spent most of the show not playing an instrument, so it was powerful when he did, uh, he finally did for the number of being alive, but I still think it was largely unnecessary in the case of the rest of the cast. And in Sweeney Todd, it was just too much. Of course, I didn't see that production, so who am I to judge? But I guess I just love tradition. And call me old-fashioned, but I love a good orchestra pit. Or I love when they uh, break convention, like in Town, when they put the musicians on stage. All this to say, I really like what Conor McPherson did in Shining City. I just, I think it's brilliant because it's not done very often, so it's something that should be used sparingly. Okay, I'm done with my rant. Let's get on with the show. Now, I, I, I know I said I was going to get away from a scene-by-scene breakdown of the plot in, in, in my episodes, but since this play only has five scenes, I thought it apropos if I kind of talked about each scene, especially since time passes between each one, as I mentioned, so we really get a sense of growth and character development. And I say five scenes, but they're five long scenes. The play is usually, if not exclusively, presented without intermission, but it's about 60 pages long. The play opens with Ian having his first session with John. I mentioned before that people refer to Shining City as a ghost story. That's because of John. He comes to Ian as a referral from his doctor. He isn't sleeping, and it's because he recently lost his wife in a horrible car accident. But moreover, he's started seeing her ghost in his house. So this scene is is kind of John stumbling through his emotions and kind of trying to make sense of this traumatic series of events. It's bad enough to lose your spouse, but seeing their ghost on top of that, it's horrifying to think about. And and these scenes happen much like any therapy session with John talking in these big chunks and monologues and Ian just kind of nodding and making notes and saying things in between like, and what happened next? And did she, did you? I, I really like this, even though it must be incredibly challenging and emotionally taxing for the actor that plays John, it's important. Not only for the plot slash exposition, but it's what therapy sessions are really like. I see a lot of TV shows in particular not really grasping that concept. They use the therapy scenes as a vessel for whatever they want the main character to hear, and they give the therapist these little speeches, and they just they just don't get it, man. That's what 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 ninety percent of a, what a therapist does is listen. Now, I don't claim to be an expert or anything, but I've been in therapy for the last three to four months, and what my therapist essentially just just lets me vent. Or she might say something to get me talking or ask a question, and then I just fucking go. Like Sometimes I'll talk for 20 minutes before she gets a word in. And so in these scenes, I think what's happening is we're kind of witnessing a man process his grief in real time. Ian lets him come to his own conclusions and make assessments of what's going on in his life. But more on that later. Now, I want to get into the second scene of this play, but instead of me telling you about it, you're going to hear it. Something I like to do with these episodes on The Straight Plays is to read some of the scenes with my actor friends. This one was tough, and it's uh, part of the reason this episode was delayed. I needed, an act- I needed an actress to do an Irish dialect with me. Finally, I connected with my friend Lucy Manuel, who you're going to hear from now, and I cannot thank her enough. I told Lucy when she responded to my post looking for an actress who could do this dialect that it was so meaningful to me that she reached out. Uh, Lucy's parents are British, so she's really good at the dialects in that part of the world. But more than that, Lucy was one of my roommates in Apartment 318 that I mentioned in the Passing Strange episode. And we used to do these dialects all the time. And she would tell me that I need to perform something with the Irish dialect. 
Uh, and here's me rambling again. Uh, let me play the scene and we'll talk about it afterwards. Here we go. Are you fucking joking me, Ian? No, I'm... No, 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 no. <laughs> Look, I know, but... No, no, no. You come home now. Nessa, I'm... I'm just not going to do that. No, because people have fighting and everybody hates it. But you know, it, you have to do it sometimes, you know? That's, people don't, please, don't smoke, Ian, because it'll make me want to smoke. Okay. What's that smell? It's new. Stuff for the thing on my leg. And this is not because we had a fight. What do you think I am? I know that people have fights. This is not because, it's not because I'm hurt or something. It's because... Oh, it's not because you're hurt, no. It's not because you're sulking and you've been letting me stew me me own juice for four days, no? No, I haven't, actually. I've just been trying to just fucking think about what I need to figure out, what I need to do, you know? But you couldn't phone me to tell me that, no? You just let... Just... Any time I thought about phoning you, I knew that it would just turn into this. We said, both of us said that we should just give it a bit of time to, but oh no. I didn't know you were going to leave me on my own for a whole week. And I didn't even know where you were. It's not a week, it's a couple of days, Jesus. It's not just a couple of days when you're on your own with a baby. It's completely fucking exhausting and knowing not knowing where you are. And I can't fucking do it. What am I supposed to say to your brother? He hasn't even asked me where you are. No one knows what to say. And of course she's delighted. She hates me. They think I ruined your life. She's delighted with herself. And I'm sitting up there on my own. She's so fucking smug now. It doesn't matter what they think. That's easy for you to say. I have nowhere to fucking go. It's their house. What right do I have to stay there if you're not there? It's none of their business. What do you mean it's none of their business? You don't know what it's like. I'm sitting up there on my own, in the box room with the baby. They don't even come near me. I can't go downstairs. You should have seen her the face on her when I asked her to mind Ashling tonight. You don't know what it's like. Look, this is all getting sorted out I nearly have a thousand euros in the bank if you just let me get on with my work if you just let me get on let me do it my way you'll have your own place there'll be no more of this and and, and we can get on with it but if you're going to I can't what do you mean my own place can you not see that this is happening I don't want I can't. I I can't. I don't want this relationship anymore. What the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? God, can you not hear me? Can you not listen to what I'm saying? I don't know if I can. Because have you completely lost touch with reality? 
Have you completely fucking lost touch with fucking reality? This is reality. What are you talking about? What about the baby? But this is not about the baby. How can it not be about the baby? Because it's not about that. Because it's about that I can't continue with you. With you and me. But what do you mean? What have I done? What have I done? It's not what you've done or what I've done. It's... It's... What? What, Ian? It's because I can't do it! I knew this. I knew this was going to happen. I knew it. I knew it. Look, if you just listen to me for once and hear something that goes in, we're going to get you out of my brother's house. It's all going to be sorted out, and I'm I'm earning some money now and everything. Yeah. No, that's it. It's all. Now you're on your feet. My father fucking said this was to me, you know? He fucking said it to me. A priest. I'm not a priest. Priest. Forget it. He said anyone who goes next or near the priest is a fucking head case to begin with. But I wouldn't listen to him. Oh, yeah, and your dad is a real one to know. Yeah, he's a drunk. But he's a human being, you know. He has feelings. He knows things, you know. Yeah, well, is your father going to find you somewhere to live? Oh, yeah, like you really found us somewhere to live, Ian. Squashed into your brother's house with that fucking fit. Always fucking looking at me like I'm going to rob something, like she has anything. Wait, now, don't fucking... What did you think was going to fucking happen? I said it to you, I have to start all over again and it's going to be tough. Oh, of course you didn't know that. You didn't know any of that. Think at the end of it all, you were... Are you breaking it off with me? I was just thinking about it. Do you remember the week you left the order? About a day later. You're so worried about your money. I say like a day later I immediately started working all the extra shifts I could get I kept having to lick up to that sleazy bollocks Darren just to keep working in that fucking kip of a pub look I know I know that you wouldn't have to worry about anything no one could understand how I put up with the thing and he said to me in front of those people but I did it so you could have the money for your cars I know I know, and look, I'm going to do everything that I can, and I promise I'm going to look after you, you know? But I don't want for you to look after me. I never wanted anyone to have to look after me. I even said, when I got pregnant, I even said then we should leave it, and we should wait until we have some more money. I said, this is too soon. You said no. You said no, not to do that. Because you thought it was wrong. Now look. What am I going to do? How can I go back there on my own again tonight? What am I going to say to your brother? Don't say anything to him. I'll talk to him. What am I going to do? Can you not go back around to your granny, even for a few that is back there. Look, I know. I know that this is... It seems like... But 
this is the worst point, you know. And I've, I know I've made some huge mistakes, and I'm the first person who'll say that, you know. But I've got to put it right, and I'm going to put it right. But we can't continue like this. And Ian, I don't think I can do this on my own. I didn't think that this was going to happen. I know, but you're not on your own. I'm with you with this, you know. But what are you saying to me? Look, Ashling is our daughter. And I'm her father. And you're her mother. And I fully, you know, I want to be her father and be, you know, but you and I are breaking up. And that's all. That's all that's happening here. That's all it is. How can you say that? How can you say that? That's all it is. Can you see what this is doing to me? I know, but we can't. I can't. Do you not love me anymore? I, I'll always. I mean, you have been. You were the only when, when it was all so hard for me, and I had to make that big decision, and it was a huge thing for me to turn my back on the church. That was a huge thing for me. You were there for me, and I couldn't have come through without you. I, I just couldn't have done it. I just couldn't have, you know. But the fucking huge mistake I made was thinking that that was the end of the journey for me. It wasn't. Have you met somebody else? No, no, I haven't. I promise you, it's not that. I can't stay with you. With us, I, I can't do it. But I'm going to make sure that you want for nothing. I just don't understand any of this. I just can't believe that it's happening even, you know? I bought this this afternoon because I thought we were going to make up. And then you were going to come home with me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is this... Is this because of me and Mark Whalen? What? Is it because... Because what? Because what? What do you... What are you saying? It doesn't matter, okay? Forget I said anything. No, no, wait, hold on. What do you mean is this because of you and Mark Whalen? What about you and Mark Whalen? Please, Ian, just please. Well, what do you mean it doesn't matter? What doesn't matter? Nothing. Just because I wanted to just ask you if that was why. But why are you asking me that? Did you? Ian, please. I'm asking you not to ask me about this now. Please. Not to ask you about what, though? Not to ask you about what? I'm not... Because do you remember I asked you about him before? And I told you. You said there was nothing going on. There wasn't. Then when... So what? Have you something you want to tell me? 
it doesn't make any difference, Ian. Please, believe me. I just wanted to know if it was because... Yeah, but, like, I mean, uh, what? Please, Ian, please. I'm asking you, okay? Yeah, but I mean... Wait a minute. What about you and Mark Whalen? You know? Have you had sex with him? That's a yes then, I suppose, then, yeah? Can you not see what this is doing to me, Ian? Can you not see what this is doing to me? You're doing it anyway, Ian. You're leaving me anyway. Please don't leave me. Please don't do it. Yeah, but, you know, you know what? This is fucking... You're throwing the baby in my face and you're screwing around. I'm not! But it's like I'm the I'm the one who you know you know that I. It was before the baby, Ian. I wasn't screwing around. When before the baby? Just before? No, she's our baby, Ian. No. Is she? I mean, because I don't know anything here. Because I, I was shocked when you got pregnant. We both were. I thought we both were. No, 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 no. She's your baby. She's your baby. She's yours and mine. This is crazy. Just, you have to believe me. Don't even... Look, wait. Hold on. Hold on. This is... What are we talking about here? Nothing. Really. Nothing. There was just... No one to talk to and... When? Just in... All around that time... When you came out and you were freaked out all the time and you were starting your course and it was working all the time. I just couldn't keep going back to your brother's house on my break with her always there, Ian. It was horrible. You know, they've been so good to us, really, when you think about it. You know that. I know, but I was just always on my own. But you weren't. When? I just... I didn't have anyone, even that I could just have a normal talk to. I just feel like it's all my fault, you know? And I was, I was worried all the time about everything. Even then, you know, Mark just would always ask me if I was all right and, and how I was getting on. Oh, I never asked you how you were. I'm just a fucking animal, yeah? I just believed him when he asked. Yeah, well... I didn't know what was going on. It was just like things were supposed to get better and they just kept getting worse and worse. I couldn't go back up there on my break. She always was saying something about the smell of smoke off me. I was working in a pub, you know. What did she want me to do? And I started going around to Mark's flat. I told you, I told you I was doing that. Yeah, but... Yeah, well, I didn't. I didn't know that anything was going to happen. I didn't think that there was even anything like that with him. But one day he was, he didn't say anything to me. He just got in the door and I just knew that what he was, I didn't know what to do. I just, I only kind of realised when we got in the door that he was, it was just really, I didn't, it was just really quick. And it was, 
I didn't even want to do it. We both felt terrible after it. I'm sorry, Ian. I'm sorry. It was only once. It was only one time. It wasn't anything really, and I, I've never gone there after. I'm sorry, Ian. I don't love him, Ian. I never loved him. I only ever wanted to be with you. Really, really. And I don't know what happened. Say something. Say something to me, will you? I'm sorry. I better go. Because I'm going to miss the last bus. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll call you tomorrow and... Yeah. Nessa, look, I'm... It's not your fault. Again, I cannot thank Lucy enough for doing that. Mwah. And so the reason I wanted to do that scene, other than the fact that it's a scene I did in dialect class, which led me to discover this beautiful play, is that it's all there, on the surface. There is no subtext. There isn't anything left unsaid, except for one thing, which I'll get to. It's just two human beings working out their problems. And in that scene, which somehow seems both short and long, you get a lot of backstory between them. It's a couple fight, but we're also witnessing a breakup between two people who have known and loved each other a long time, and they have a child together. This is the only scene that Nessa is in, but it's still such a meaty role. Listening to it, you kind of want to blame Ian. Here is this sweet woman who is pleading for him to come home, and is kind of raising their baby on her own, and he's telling her to just be patient that he's going to take care of them. But you also feel for him. I said there's no subtext, but there is something that he isn't telling her, and I'll get to it when we come to it, but once we find out why he's leaving her, I think he becomes redeemable. And he isn't just cutting ties. He's saying he's going to set her up with her own place and, and continue to help raise Ashling. He just needs time to get his life together and sort things out. The way she ends this scene is just profoundly melancholy to me. She just says, it's not his fault, and walks away. And you can tell she really wants to blame him, though she probably blames herself. I hope you guys enjoyed that, because despite how heavy it is, we really enjoyed recording it. The next scene is another therapy session between Ian and John. In this scene, John really gets to the bulk of his grief, which is read as guilt. He realizes that part of why he is literally haunted by his wife, uh, Mary, is because he had an affair before she died, which he details in this scene. He talks about meeting the woman at a party they were both at and being able to talk to her in a way that he couldn't with his wife. He says things that are very heavy, uh, that he began to resent his wife for not being able to have children. And now I'm not in any way, any way glorifying this because it's pretty fucking awful and, and, and not something that an emotionally healthy person does. But you kind of feel for John in the sense that, you know, this is a therapy session, so there's not supposed to be any judgment. Part of the reason why I love this play so much is that you really feel like a fly on the wall and that you're privileged to be watching what's going on. So in these scenes with John, you start to root for him, not because he's some kind of good person, again, did some terrible things, but because he's healing. He says in this scene that he hates himself for how he treated Mary. He says that he bought her a, a nice red coat out of guilt. 
and that she was wearing it the day she died. And when she appears to him as a ghost, she's wearing that same red coat. The whole play is just dripping with sadness. But but this is kind of the worst of it. He just lets out all of his feelings and, and how horrible he was to his wife before she died. Though in the next scene, scene four, we start to get a little more positivity. This is the scene where Ian meets with a guy who he picked up in a park who is, uh, again, essentially a male escort. I mentioned before about the things left unsaid. Well, it's this. We see that the reason Ian left Nessa is because he's come to the realization that he might be gay. Now, I say might be, and, and I talked about that last episode, is that when you grow up in a religious setting, everything is so repressed that you don't really get to explore who you are outside of that. Unless you do what Ian did, which is to leave the church and find out. So he has this scene with Lawrence, and it's really a very sweet scene. I mean, it's incredibly awkward, and Ian is incredibly awkward. Uh, this is his first time being with a man. But Lawrence is kind and, and very mindful of that. And, and so they share a glass of wine, which Ian pours into these mugs, because it's all he has. Uh, Lawrence asks if he wants to put on some music, and Ian puts on a CD with some mellow country rock. At least that's what the script says. And they just sit and talk, and Ian is incredibly nervous. So nervous that his hands are shaking at one point. And then the next song on the CD plays, and it goes from this mellow country rock to like fast-paced hillbilly-style country with like fiddles and all that. And Ian gets so flustered, and he turns off the music. But Lawrence calms him down, and he reassures him. He tells him to put on the other music from before. And they just stand there swaying to the music with each other. I, I think it's just a really sweet scene, like I said before. And it's just a nice reprieve from all the heaviness from the scenes prior. And here is where you really begin to understand Ian. There's a saying that people who study psychology or go into the psychiatry field, um, that half of them do it to fix themselves. They do it so they can self-actualize and, and sort of diagnose themselves and cope with their life experiences. Now, I kind of think this is a bit condescending and saying that is, is looking at mental illness in a way that isn't helpful or productive, but I do think it's true of Ian, that perhaps the reason he studied to become a therapist is to make sense of the feelings he's having. What I'm saying is repressed feelings are never a good thing and that all, sort of all sorts of issues arise from repressing your feelings. The final scene of this play is interesting. In a more traditionally structured play, the last scene I mentioned with Lawrence would have maybe ended the first act, and the second act would have been about Ian exploring his sexuality. But we don't get that. Instead, we jump ahead two months or so, as the playwright says, as, as is the case with all of the scenes, and we get a nice wrap-up scene. Literally. The scene opens with Ian trying to gift wrap a teddy bear. Anyway, John comes to visit Ian as he's packing up his office. And I initially thought it was going to be for a final therapy session, but instead, John's completed his therapy, and he's just stopping by to give Ian a thank you gift. It's a lamp. He jokes about not knowing what to get uh, and, and having to have the girl in the, sh in the shop help him pick it out. Ian tells John that he's packing up and moving to Limerick, that his uh, fiance is there with their baby. Uh, he has an interview lined up for a new position. And, and in this moment, I feel like a year has gone by. There's so much we missed. They literally go from a scene where he's on a date with a male prostitute to him going back to Nessa and Ashling. For me, this is the one part of the play that kind of falls short. 
don't get me wrong i'm not mad that he goes that he gets back together with nessa that's conceivable to me i just feel like we got robbed of that time in between that explains how we got there because the scenes with ian and john they don't feel like that much time has elapsed even when it has but the gap of time between scene four and five like i said structurally there's a whole act missing but it is a nice scene john says that he's moved out of the house uh he kept seeing amari in and he's found an apartment he also says he's dating someone Apart from the time missing before it, it's a really it's really a lovely scene. And something happens at the very end of the play that I'm not sure how to feel about. John exits and leaves Ian alone. And I, and I want to read you the stage directions that close out the play. Ian hovers near the open door while John goes down. He picks up a flyer off the floor at the threshold and crumples it up. He picks up two books off the floor and looks at the back of one of them. We hear the outer door slam shut. In the distance, we hear the faint sound of an ice cream van's music. Ian throws one of the two books in a box near the door. He shuts the door and crosses the room to throw the other book in a different box. In the darkening gloom of the afternoon, we see that Mary's ghost has appeared behind the door. She is looking at Ian just as John described her. She wears her red coat, which is filthy. Her hair is wet. She looks beaten up. She looks terrifying. Ian has his back to her at his desk, going through some old mail. But he seems to sense something and turns. Lights down. End of play. Isn't that wild? Here's why I don't know what to think of it. So I mentioned at the top of this episode that I don't think it's a ghost story. So in a way, the ending feels like, oh, hey, you forgot this was a ghost story. So let's actually put it in there to remind you. The only way I can make sense of it is to say that it's symbolism. The thing I kind of hate about symbolism is that it's so arbitrary, like anything can be symbolism. He sits down, which symbolizes he's giving up. You know what I mean? Uh, but the symbolism of Mary kind of makes sense. She's a ghost from John's past, metaphorically speaking, though in, in the case of the play, I guess literally speaking. And the reason I think it's weird is that she's John's ghost, and he seems to have moved on. Then Ian sees her at the end. So you could say that symbolizes Ian has ghosts he has yet to confront, which, if true, would explain why he's back with Nessa after having just been with a man. Maybe it scared him. Maybe he goes back to Nessa because it felt safe, comfortable. And now that I'm thinking about it, kind of makes sense that he did this in a way. Because it, it, it leaves it open to interpretation. And when I say he, I mean the playwright, obviously. And I've always said that great art leaves you with more questions than answers. I'd like to read a quote from a theater critic named Michael Billington. Um, he had this to say after seeing the 2004 Royal Court Theater production. McPherson implies the Irish obsession with the dead is not just a religious hangover, but a consequence of failure to achieve proper contact in life. I honestly can't tell if he's bashing the play or praising it, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to choose praise. Because despite my frustration with the last scene, I do really love this play. It's so genuinely human, and Conor McPherson really nails the dynamic between therapist and patient. This play also brings up sexuality in an interesting way, because he never really says that he's gay. Uh, in fact, in that scene with Lawrence, they don't even kiss. 
It's almost like he's a nervous teenager who's on his first date. In that regard, it's kind of a refreshing change of pace from something like Bear, where the sexuality of the main characters is literally a plot point. Whereas with Shining City, it's just kind of a character trait of his. It's definitely a secret he carries with him, and it certainly influences the scene with Nessa, but it's not a huge talking point. It's just kind of a stop on his journey. So in the end, would I have liked a little more from this story? Yeah, but what we got was still a very beautiful look at a year in a man's life. All right, so there's where I'll wrap it up, but let's talk about next week's show. This one is also linked to Bear. Just like with this episode, I wanted to talk about a different side of the story that Bear told. I said that Bear was an allegory of Romeo and Juliet, so I thought, let's do another musical that's an allegory of Romeo and Juliet. A direct one. Next week's episode will be on West Side Story by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. I can't wait. And on that note, you can follow me at Breaking the Fourth on Twitter. I'm at Breaking the Fourth Podcast on Instagram. And you can email me at BreakTheFourthWallPod at gmail.com. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Tell Randy Gonzalez, give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, or don't. No one is making you, but I hear that it's the best way to start 2021 on a positive note. Until next week, I've been Juice, and this has been Breaking the Fourth Wall.